on December 4, 1998, 14-year-old Michael Polite was hanging out in his hometown of Hopewell, Missouri. It was a typical evening for Michael. He met up with his friend Josh and then invited him over for a sleepover. Michael's mother, Rita, came home around midnight and everyone headed to bed. The next morning, the boys woke up to find the entire mobile home filled with smoke. But that wasn't all. Rita had been brutally murdered, and her death would set off a chain of events that would change Michael's life forever. This is the murder of Rita Polite. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Haunted Corner. Happy Monday. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Today I've got a true crime tale for you that has lots of layers to it. There's a 48 hours episode about this case called The Case Against Michael Polite. It aired in November and it's available online. This one's wild. Let's get into it. Michael Polite grew up in the small community of Hopewell, Missouri, which was about 70 miles southwest of St. Louis. He was really close with his mother, Rita, and he had two older sisters named Crystal and Melanie, who were in their 20s at the time of this case. Rita and her husband, Ed Polite, divorced in the summer of 1998 after over 20 years of marriage, and it was really tough, as divorces usually are. There were allegations of infidelity and domestic violence. Michael remembered that his mother was always recording him at his baseball and football games. His sisters also described how close the pair was. The kids grew up playing outside, riding bicycles and dirt bikes. They had a typical childhood. On December 4th of 1998, Michael, who was 14 at the time, was home alone at his mother's home. He split time between his parents' houses after they separated, but this evening, he was home alone while his mother was working at a local bar, and he decided to head out to the store where he met up with a friend from school, 15-year-old Josh. He invited Josh over to his house. They were planning on playing video games and hanging out, and Josh was going to stay overnight. Around midnight... Rita came home from work, and at that time, Michael asked Josh if he wanted to sleep in the living room, on the couch, or if he wanted to sleep on the floor in his room. Josh decided to sleep on the floor, which is a decision that he would later regret. When Rita arrived home, she said goodnight to the boys and told Michael that she loved him, and that was the last time Michael would see his mother alive. The next morning, around 6.30 a.m., the boys woke up and noticed that smoke was filling the room. Michael saw an orange glow coming from his mother's room, and when he called out for her, she didn't respond. 
Josh and Michael were able to run out of the mobile home. Josh ran to a neighbor's house to get help, and Michael grabbed a hose and ran straight for his mother's room. As he arrived, he found his mother on the floor. He saw blood on her legs and noticed that she was on fire from the waist up. It was too late. Rita Polite, who was 40 at the time, was dead. Michael called his sister Crystal to tell her what had happened. Crystal picked up their other sister Melanie on the way to their mother's house, and by the time they arrived at the home, there were police cars and fire trucks all over the block, and Michael was sitting in one of the police cars covered in soot from the, the fire and clearly crying. When officers arrived on the scene, they quickly realized that this was a murder. Rita had suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and she also had a dislocated shoulder. There was blood all over the scene, all over the walls, and there were signs of a struggle. And there was also evidence of an accelerant having been used to set Rita on fire. Michael, as well as Josh, were both taken to the Washington County Sheriff's Office to be questioned. But on the way, Michael asked a question that would raise flags for officers. He asked, quote, what's going to ha happen to my mom's truck? End quote. To be fair, this kid is obviously in shock, but it was still strange to the officers. When they arrived at the sheriff's office for questioning, Michael was given a voice stress test, which he failed. They also took his shoes as evidence, and an accelerant sniffing dog alerted to the shoes, indicating that they had been in contact with accelerants, which to me is like, well, yeah, he was walking around the scene, so maybe came from that. Well, during the interviews, both Josh and Michael claimed they were in Michael's room the entire night, and they didn't know what had happened to her. But officers didn't believe them. Both boys were questioned repeatedly, and two days after the murder, Josh was interviewed by two officers with his mother present. And at this point, he recounted something from the middle of the night that would point the finger directly at Michael. Josh claimed that he woke up in the middle of the night and he heard a noise in a woman's voice and that he didn't see Michael in his bed at that time. The statement from Josh was enough to make cops be like, well, yep, this is our guy or our kid because he's 14, year, 14 years old at the time. Michael did it, you know, according to them, despite not having any real physical evidence. There were new, no wounds on Michael, no blood. There was no weapon, nothing. But they had their eyes locked in on Michael now. Then on December 7th, 1998, 14-year-old Michael Polite was arrested for the murder of his mother, Rita. Everyone in the family immediately believed that he was innocent. Michael loved his mother, according to them, and they just couldn't believe that he was capable of, capable of doing something so heinous. But things about Michael came out that began to cast shadows of doubt surrounding his innocence. Michael struggled in school. He had to repeat seventh grade three times because he never went to class. He was truant, 
And about 10 months before the murder, Michael was hospitalized for his behavior. He allegedly threatened his mother, claiming he was going to kill her and himself. The family believed a lot of Michael's anger issues surrounded his parents' divorce. Three years later, while Michael was in custody awaiting his trial, the prosecution came to him with a plea deal. If he would plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, he would spend a maximum of 15 years in prison. But Michael refused this plea deal because he claimed he knew he was innocent and he didn't murder his mother. In January of 2002, Michael's trial began. He was only 17 years old at the time. And the biggest piece of evidence was his shoes. An accelerant, which was later determined to be gasoline, had been found on his shoes. Michael never took the stand to give his side of the story. He did, however, claim that this wasn't evidence of murder, murdering his mother. But he then described how on the night of the murder, he and Josh used gasoline to set fire on railroad tracks nearby the home. But instead of this being used to prove his innocence, it was used against my, Michael at the trial. Investigators would argue that the burn patterns on the railroad tracks matched the ones that were found on Rita's body at the scene. Jurors were told about the fires that Michael would set, and they were also told about the argument that Michael had with his mother weeks before the murder, and how, after this argument, Michael sat playing with a lighter. They attempted to paint this as an intimidation method, but Michael, of course, denies this. During the trial, more information came out that pointed the finger at Michael. While Michael was at a juvenile detention center, he attempted to take his own life. And it was at this time that he allegedly confessed to killing his mother. Three employees who were there at the time wrote statements saying that he said, quote, I haven't cared since I killed my mom, end quote. But Michael claims that is not what he said. He claims that he said, quote, I haven't cared since they killed my mom, end quote. Jurors never heard from anyone who could say Michael didn't do it. Josh, the friend that was there that night, was given immunity, but he never took the stand either. No one was examined as a character witness. The defense based its case on the lack of direct evidence there was no weapon found, and Michael had no blood on his clothes and no evidence of injuries. After three days of testimony, the case went to the jury. After more than four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Michael was found guilty of second-degree murder. He was later sentenced to life in prison. And he was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary, which was once called, quote, the bloodiest 47 acres in America, end quote. But he was determined, despite his sentence, to prove his innocence. According to him, he was not going to go down that easily. But his life in prison was not easy at all. He was a target immediately after arriving. He claims that he got into a fight on his first day and joined a gang for protection while he was in there. 
all the while longing for help to prove his innocence. He claims he asked his father for help, but he was denied. Five years after his conviction, Michael wrote a letter to the Midwest Innocence Project asking them to take a look at his case. And they did. They worked tirelessly on it for years. And eventually, the attorneys, Trisha Bushnell, Megan Crane, and Mark Emerson began, became involved. They began to dismantle the case, which they claimed was based on bad science. The first things they noticed is that when investigators arrived at the scene, they based the claim that an accelerant was used on the burn patterns just by looking at them which violated the gold standard of fire investigation at the time, which required lab testing. Lab testing was eventually done on the carpet from the scene, and no accelerant was found at the scene. Prosecutors claimed that there wasn't an accelerant found on the carpet because it likely burnt up in the fire. Um, okay. Another thing that the attorneys from the Midwest Innocence Project is that there was no gasoline actually found on Michael's shoes and that it was a chemical that was used during the shoemaking process that was falsely identified as gasoline, which the Missouri State Crime Lab eventually confirmed. It's now known that solvents that were found in the adhesives on shoes have similarities to gasoline, but this wasn't known at the time. So the prosecution's entire case was based around the shoes. That's all they had, and it wasn't a home run. So what about Michael's friend, Josh? He was given immunity. So why? He now claims that he was, when he was being interviewed by police, he would say one thing, and they would tell him that he was lying or that was not what happened. And... He even remembers telling his mom that, quote, they keep telling me that I'm lying and I don't even know if I'm telling the truth anymore, end quote. Brendan Dassey, anyone? So Josh now claims that nothing strange happened that night. But regarding his statement about Michael not being in bed when Josh woke up in the middle of the night, he claims he doesn't remember saying that. And if he did, it was at a week a weak point for him, like they had broken him down after hours and hours of inter interrogating to the point where he would say anything. He claims that he took the immunity deal just to get it over with. He was never called to the stand to testify because the prosecution knew they wouldn't have anything if they called him as a witness. Josh says that if he could have done one thing differently that night, he would have slept out on the couch instead of in Michael's room because then he might have been able to stop whatever happened that night. The lawyers in the Midwest Innocence Project spent a lot of time picking apart Michael's case and looking for loopholes. They wanted to get Michael out of prison, and they ultimately filed court documents suggesting Michael's father, Edward, as a, another potential suspect. It's reported that Ed was really angry about the terms of the divorce, especially the financial portion. So, and the terms of this divorce were filed by a judge just four days before Rita's murder. 
there was an outburst in court by Ed where he claimed, quote, you'll never live to see a dime of that money, end quote. So did Ed murder Rita and let his own son take the fall for the murder? That's what Michael's legal team thinks. But Ed did have an alibi at the time. He was home, according to himself, 80 miles away at the time of his murder. But Michael believes that his father had helped planning the murder with his own cousin, Johnny. On the night of the murder, a witness saw Johnny walking near the railroad tracks, and he walked up to the truck that the witness was in and asked him if he had heard about Rita, and he told them that she had been killed. A week later, Johnny showed up at their house at 6 in the morning, questioning them about what they knew about Rita's murder and behaving really strangely. Also strange, after the crime scene had been cleared, someone showed up at the sheriff's office and claimed that they had found a tire iron in Michael's closet. Guess who it was? It was Johnny, Ed's cousin. The tire iron was ultimately ruled out as the murder weapon, but police are adamant that the tire iron wasn't at the scene and definitely wasn't in Michael's closet initially. Many years went by, but then in 2021, there was a development that no one saw coming. A bill passed in Missouri giving juvenile offenders convicted of serious crimes a second chance, and Michael was released on parole under this new law. On April of 2022, after serving 23 years behind bars, Michael Polite walked out of prison. He was incarcerated at 14 years old, and he was now 38. But this was not the end of the road for Michael. He and his legal team continued to fight to get his conviction overturned and to find the real murderer of his mother, Rita. One of Michael's friends arrived when he was released from prison and brought a bike similar to the ones that they had ridden when they were kids, and Michael Polite rode away as a free man. After his release, he got his tattoos covered up, he got a job as a carpenter, and he got his driver's license. He really got his life back on track. And that is the murder of Rita Pleat. I really hope that justice is served for Rita because I'm not sure that Michael killed his mother. And the person responsible, I believe, is still out there living their life. Michael has maintained his innocence and continues to seek justice for his mother. He hopes that one day he will be exonerated. The local sheriff's office has reopened the investigation into the murder of Rita Polite, so hopefully one day they'll have answers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode, and I'll link it in the show notes. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and on YouTube with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to episodes, plus a lot more. So head over to patreon.com forward slash the haunted corner to join now.
Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you have a case suggestion to or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye.